You're listening to a podcast from 702. It's time for the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith is in the building. 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Doctor, happy Monday. How are you doing? Doctor? Dr. Chris? Sorry, I did that classic <laughs> thing where you're on mute. You didn't say it, you just said doctor, doctor. I thought it was going to be a joke, but I was the joke. Sorry about that. It's okay. Look Listen, it, it happens to me at least 30% of my weekly oh. online meetings where somebody has to say, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> Are you well, doctor? I thought I was so well prepared. Yeah, I'm very good. I thought, I thought I had all the bases covered. I had everything ready in good time, and I was enjoying listening to you and John and thinking, right, I'm all set. Here we go. And, and I've made the most fundamental mistake in the book. But, but let that not put the dampener on the occasion. I'm good. How are you? I'm good, and I, I'm very curious about our cholera outbreak and just cholera in general. Um, you know, we're just hearing, okay, there's deaths, there's people in hospitals, but John Pullman just noted that in another province, there are no deaths, just people that are sick. Does cholera have different strains? And is there something that you think, if there is an outbreak of cholera, this is what the public needs to be aware of? First of all, what's cholera? It's a bacterial infection. It's called Vibrio cholerae, to give it its proper name. And it has an amazing life history, actually, cholera. It is part of the natural flora in the same way that we have bacteria living in our intestines of small marine organisms which are called copepods so their microbiome includes cholera what makes these copepods increase in number warm sea lots of plants to eat and you normally therefore see a high outbreak rate of cholera where there have been sustained high sea surface temperatures lots of blooms of, of plants and things in the sea you then get a big rush of these organisms being produced and they then pre- release into the water the vibrio that they carry or if there's a flood they come inland and then you get cases inland and once it gets into people the people become the source of the infection so it's really interesting it starts off as an infection out in the natural world a zoonosis and then it endemicizes in us for for at least a while spreading in urban cycle among people because what leaves your body contains the microorganism it gets into the water supplies and if people then drink it it then infects them and the way it causes disease is it goes through into your intestine and it secretes into the intestine a signal that your intestinal cells themselves normally use to tell them to secrete digestive juices. So you get what's called a secretory diarrhea, where you hose out liquid because you're basically opening the taps on your intestine saying, put lots of digestive juices in, put lots of digestive juices in, and a person can dehydrate to death with cholera very, very quickly. Mm. And because everything that's leaving the body is highly infectious because the microbes are in there, you've got to be really careful about what happens to the effluent make sure it doesn't get where other people could come into contact with it, particularly into the drinking water, because then it can proliferate in the drinking water, at least for a while, and other people can pick it up. Why some people are more vulnerable than others? Well, first and foremost, the the biggest risk from this is going to be how well are the people to start with. If Mm. you've got people who are normally resilient, hale and hearty, healthy, then they're obviously going to have a better starting position than someone who's already debilitated by other diseases, Mm. poor environment, poor nutrition and so on. 
there are differences in the organism and some individuals and some strains of these things can have an interaction where you have a vulnerable person and a, and a more enhanced or virulent form of the organism and you can end up with a more severe dose of the disease. That's definitely true as well. But it is a nasty condition. It does unfortunately claim many, many lives around the world. And luckily, what can we do about it? We can look from space. Because uh, I was lucky enough to interview a couple of times, actually over the last 20 years, a lady from Maryland in mm. America called Rita Colwell who noticed, first of all, that there was this relationship between what the sea is doing and how green the sea is, and that pre-dating when you're going to get a cholera outbreak. So they're now using satellites and a special screening program to watch where on earth you've got all the danger signals mm. emerging that would predict, here's cholera coming, and then you can do something about it. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And of course, we'll listen in to John Pullman's show where they discuss the details of this outbreak. We go to the lines. We have Kumbulani in Centurion. The doctor is here. Go ahead. Hello. Yes, Kumbulani, go ahead. Yes. Uh, okay. I just wanted to find out. I, um, I read somewhere that the, the Earth spins on, the, on its axis around the equator at about 1,670 kilometers per hour, and that at the same time, it um, moves around the sun at about 107,000 kilometers per hour. So, of course, I can understand we won't feel it if we are on Earth, but what I wanted to find out is why is it that you don't see the Earth spinning or see the Earth moving if you are, say, up in the sky in an aeroplane or a helicopter? Thank you. Thank you so much. The, the answer to this one is that, obviously, if you were far enough away from Earth, you do see the Earth spinning. And if you were in a particular orbit, for instance, a polar orbit, where a satellite goes over the North Pole, around the back, over the South Pole, up towards the North Pole again, the Earth turns inside you, and you can very much see that. If you were in a remote place in space, not in a orbit which is linked to its position, a so-called geosynchronous orbit, but in a different orbit around the Earth, you, you would be able to watch the planet turning. When you're closer to the Earth's surface, though, flying around in an aircraft, there's a couple of things going on. One is that generally you're flying with the prevailing winds, and generally that means you're flying with the rotation of the Earth. Not always, but, but often. So you tend to be just making speed over the ground because your plane is going faster than, than the Earth is moving and the atmosphere is already moving anyway because it's being dragged around with the Earth. So you, you're not going at, at a massively, dramatically different speed. So you don't notice the Earth whizzing the wrong way underneath you. Um, and the other point is that you're quite low to the surface of the Earth anyway. So you're not going to see the, the whole planet vista that you would get if you were a satellite deep in space where you could watch what the Earth is doing. And so big, that, that range of factors mean that to your eye and the speed that you're travelling at, the Earth does not appear to be moving for you apart from, obviously, you going speed over ground in your aircraft. Thank you so much, Kumbulani, for that question. Mohale in Ranpok Ridge. Hi. Hi, Rene how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Good, good, thanks. Uh, I'm just curious. I wanted to ask the doctor. You know when you've got an itch uh, on your body in areas where your eyes can't see, like the back of your neck or the back of your, maybe your back or somewhere on top of your head. Mm. And then you want to scratch that area and then you direct your hand to go scratch that area. You immediately hit that spot. Like you don't miss it a couple of times before you find it. How is that connection between like your, your mind and your hand as to how to do that? Mm. 
A brilliant question. And the answer is it is the process of proprioception, which is your body knowing where all the different bits of it are in three-dimensional space at any moment in time and guiding movement accordingly. And the fact that your sensory system has a map of your body in it. So when you have a particular area of the body that's hurting or itching or you need to do something too, you can guide one part of your body to the other part of your body because your brain is using that map of the layout of the body and it knows where each of your individual areas are relative to each other and as you move your hand for example it's updating that map so it knows your hand is now in position x relative to the small of my back where i want to scratch and it continuously updates and and refines the movement to make sure you do hit the spot there is a wrinkle here though which is that not all parts of the body are mapped out with the same resolution so if you look at the end of your finger you could take two pins and bring them very very close together like a fraction of a, a millimeter and you can feel that there are two pinpricks going into your finger repeat this experiment on the back of your neck or in the middle of your back for example you'll have to move the pinpricks about an inch apart before you can tell that there's not just one pinprick so the body tends to have a, a higher resolution of the map a better more accurate map of, of body surface in the areas of the body that you actually need to do active discriminatory touch reach out feel something explore something with your fingers or with your lips for example move your tongue in a very precise way to feel something whereas with your back you didn't you never need to do that so you don't devote quite as many nerve fibers to having quite as dense a map of your small of your back so to a certain extent knowing that you've hit the spot is partly because your body is so good at guiding one part to the other and knowing where all the different parts are, but also because the so-called receptive fields, which are how big the patches of skin that signal each region of your body are on your back, are much, much bigger than on your fingers. So it seems like you're getting to precisely the right spot straight away. In fact, you're getting pretty close, but not necessarily spot on because your body doesn't know where spot on is because the area that's itching is so big because there's relatively few nerve cells supplying that big patch of skin. Thank you so much for that one. Let's go to Ella in Johannesburg South. Hi, Ella. Hi there, Lebo. Yes. Uh, my question to the doctor is the various smells in our anatomy, for an example, your armpits has got a stinky smell, the feet has got a, another smell, the vagina has got a fishy smell. I just want to him to explain to us what's the signs on that, please. Oh, so so as in the different types of odors or specifically the yes. gross odors? Different, you know, it's different odors. So I just want, why is that different? Yes, yes. All right. Thank mm. you so much for that one, Ella. Mm. Well, a lovely thought. Stinky smells and why do we make them? Well, you have on your and body some, sweat And some, glands. might I add, don't find it stinky. Some people like... No, well, not everybody. Some, <laughs> yeah. do, some do like, like the odor. That's yes. Right. Well, you have on your body sweat glands all over the body, but in some places, specific areas, the naughty bits and tickly bits really is where you find most of them, you find a different type of sweat gland, not an eccrine gland, which just makes salty sweat to help you cool down. You find apocrine sweat glands. These squirt out an oily mixture as well as water, and they have the effect of nurturing and nourishing and therefore selecting for populations of bacteria that will eat those fats and oils that come out and metabolize them into particular smelly things. And this partly is what gives you your body odor. 
obviously if you encounter things in the environment they can also give you an odor but a lot of your personal odor is because of the microbes that are on you and your metabolism on top also adds some particular volatile chemicals that give you a particular whiff so underarm smell one way that's bacteria feasting on dead skin the stuff your apocrine glands squirt out and the water that's there other naughty bits they also accumulate sweat same sorts of glands in the same sort of way and the chemistry of those sorts of areas is slightly different as well because you have more or less moisture you also have other other things like the acid in the vagina which tends to select for certain microbes which again affects which ones grow there and therefore what they do and don't eat and what sorts of smells they can produce and then superimposed on that you can also get differences because of infections and so if you get a certain infection in a certain place bugs that grow there that shouldn't be growing there can release their own particular bouquet of smells and this may make the smell of certain areas of the body different and in some cases quite bad and this may draw your attention to the fact a wound is infected for example and one other interesting thing about this is it's not necessarily microbes there was a study recently where scientists have confirmed that what a woman had been saying for years that she could smell people with parkinson's disease the nerve disorder the degenerative what? brain disorder she said i can smell people who wow. have parkinson's and i can smell them who when they've got it before they even know they've got it mm. and she was so insistent that a research team teamed up with her did the study they took shirts worn by people who did and didn't have parkinson's disease cut them in half and did the blind control study with her and asked her to select the shirts of the people who had Parkinson's and those who didn't, and she got 100%. And she said she learned to do this because her own husband, who was an anaesthetist originally, developed this strange, subtle change to the way he smelt to her, and this led her to be able to recognise, because he subsequently was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, that that's what someone with Parkinson's disease smells like to her so we don't know exactly why that's happening but we do know that in parkinson's there are changes to the microbiome as well probably because of changes to the way the nervous system works and therefore changes to the population of bugs on the skin in in your body elsewhere on your body and that has the effect of changing the pattern of volatile chemicals that come off of you and therefore what you whiff of but i'm sure also there's other more obvious things like when my son got tonsillitis i could smell it immediately that it smelled yep, like he absolutely. had an infection in his throat. And I don't know if that's a common thing that people can pick up or just because I grew, grew up around people who got sick. And I could tell that the breath's changed, but yeah, I'm assuming yeah. there are other things you can pick up just by the smell. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And we, we always make a, a, a case when we're doing kind of medical assessments. A patient comes in and they may not be able to give you a clear history. They might be unconscious, but you, you always use all your senses when trying to make a diagnosis. And sometimes the way someone smells is a dead giveaway. And it might be that they're drunk, for example, and they smell of alcohol, but you also get some unconscious patients will come in. And the reason they smell particularly like uh, fruity is because they might have diabetes and they might be in a diabetic coma. And I've, I've rescued patients who've been in that position where they've come in and they've been a bit debilitated and people wrote them off as oh, they're, they're a homeless person who's a bit drunk. Mm. And in fact, a proper assessment shows this person's got a really high blood sugar, they haven't had any insulin, and they're in a diabetic coma, uh, a, a hyperosmotic non... Um, uh, yes, it's a honk is what it's called and they've they've got very high blood sugar become very dehydrated and they're ketotic and if you smell the pear drop smell that's the giveaway and then you you resuscitate them and then they they're instantly better mm. all right let's quickly take a question from cp war in midran go ahead 
Hello. Yes, Pio, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, my question is around the kids and cartoons. Mm. Yes, I'm a parent of three kids. One is four, the other one is three, the other one is one month and a couple of months. Yes. So what I'd like to know from the doctor is what part of the brain uh, did the, the people who invented cartoons, what uh, part of the brain did they study to know that this way uh, uh, fascinate kids? Because most of, of the time when they are at home, they are glued to the television in such a way that they no longer have time now so, so Spiwo, just because I'm about to run out of time, I think, Doctor, you got you got the crux of the question. So, what is the science basically behind um, um, children's entertainment when it comes to things like cartoons? Like, what did they figure out excites children for them to be glued to the screens as long as they are? Children, and in fact, pretty much any animal, especially in youth, is addicted to change and novelty. The brain is craving fresh stimulation, things that change things it can learn from, because the brain is learning how you connect cause and effect. And it likes to do it across all the different modalities or senses that you can experience. So to engage a child, you need something loud. There's got to be nice lots of sounds that are interesting and changing, not monotonous and boring. Nothing you get on this program is monotonous and boring, of course. And so you get lots of change, bright colours, Characters that have big faces and big eyes because the brain devotes an enormous amount of processing to what we look like and recognising faces. And you bring all those things together with something that's rapidly changing, nice soundtrack, lots of interesting sounds, lots of interesting colours, and something that's a bit daft and makes you laugh and plugs into a, a young brain's sense of humour and you've got something that's infectious viewing. Thank you so much, Dr Chris Smith. We're going to have to leave it then. We'll be back with you next week.